0: You're listening to World Building for Masochists.
1: And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves.
2: It's because at the end of the day, we all really want to know how the sausage gets made. This is KB Wagers.
3: I'm Rowena Miller.
1: I'm Marshall Ryan Moresca.
3: I'm Cass Morris. And this is episode 40, The Sacred and the Profane. All right, listeners, I am so delighted that this week we are welcoming KB Wagers onto the show with us. Katie, would you introduce yourself and tell us about your work and your latest books and your forthcoming books and all of that fantasticness?
2: I will. Do we have that much time? How long is this podcast?
3: As long as we Uh, want it to
2: be, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having me, everybody. Um, Like. Cass said, I am K.B. Wagers, or Katie, if you happen to know me a little bit better. I am the author of the um, Hell Bristol novels from Orbit books. And if you are interested in a gunrunner turned empress story, a la um, Star Wars, you are welcome to check both uh, the Drawn and War Trilogy and the Farian War Trilogy. I love how I just forgot what my books were called. <laughs> um, the last book in the Farian War Trilogy is coming out in February of 2021, if we actually make it that far. Um, and it is called uh, Out Past the Stars. I also write military science fiction for Harper Voyager. Um, So if you are in the moon for something a little bit sillier involving a lot of terrible jokes and a lot of queer people who are super competent at their jobs as Members of the near-earth orbital guard You can check out the Neo-G adventures the first book a pale light in the black is out already And the next book comes out in the summer and it is called hold fast through the fire I feel
3: like you and Marshall can have conversations about writing all of the books every year and putting the rest <laughs> of us to just absolute shame.
1: I've never had more than two in any given year. I'm sure. <laughs> 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 like every once in a while, I'm like, I do. Then I like looked up like Gail Z. Martin's bibliography. And I'm like, nope, uh, nope. I'm you know, I'm nowhere, n- I'm nowhere near that level of master class. <laughs> so. You just got to keep cranking it out because that's, you know, that's what you got to do. Do we have stuff that we cranked out? Are we going to are we going to be talking since this is this is our last episode of the year? Oh, it's true. It yes. is. Are we going to be talking about how did that happen? Yeah. Oof. We should,
3: Mind you, we, I mean, we've still got three
1: how, weeks. How's your year we're, we're, been we're recording everybody?
0: this
3: three weeks ahead of time anything could happen
0: <laughs> yeah let's I don't know Riot. knock on wood find find some find something real quick
2: <laughs> it's 2020 who knows what we'll see anything but
3: presuming we've made it to December 23rd and the world hasn't exploded um, my book comes out next week giveaway tonight December 29th finally Ooh. in the weird liminal space there at the very tail end of the year but I'm very excited i i i really love this book i think i did i told the story i wanted to tell and i'm very happy about that and i'm eager and excited for it to be out in the world and meeting people um and the same day that comes out if you enjoy listening to me on world building for masochists i will also be on my agent's podcast uh which is cerebrocast talking about my favorite of the x-men rogue that will be official when that'll be public knowledge by the time this episode airs so <laughs> i can say that now that is why as mentioned in the last episode i've been mainlining comics from the 90s for the last month <laughs> It's all i've read <laughs> it's getting ready for that so that's that's me and my exciting end of year news anybody else have excitement um
1: for end of year i mean if we're gonna if we're going to talk about, like, award eligibility, we could we could ramble on about that. Because um, I don't have anything else till the, the end of the year. I do have a book coming out in February, on February 9th, of course. You know, you know, I've been ranting about that book literally since this podcast began, because, like, the writing process <laughs> was pretty much parallel to the beginning of this podcast, and everything we've talked about over the course of this podcast has filtered its way into this book, so... So that's you know, <laughs> I learned so much doing this podcast, and it, it's all there in the book. <laughs> um, at least I hope it is. But that's philosophy of Revolution, and it comes out February 9th. Um, what else should we talk about before we dive into sanctity and profanity?
0: Is there anything holding us back from diving right into <laughs> profanity? I mean, rarely, rarely, <laughs> <laughs> rarely. No, I was so excited um, when Katie said we should do the sacred and the profane, because I feel like every time we do a listener question episode, we get the question, how do you come up with curse words? And it becomes this entire rabbit hole of, well, you have to understand, like, what is sacred, what is valued, you have to understand what has, like, been profaned, you have to understand, like, all this stuff about your world before you can really, like, understand curse words and so I was like oh it's an entire episode about this listener question that we get every time that we always say we could do a whole episode about this so we will
1: welcome here's the whole episode
0: (laughs) we even got you a guest star
2: oh and I'm I'm wearing my uh my dragon age well shit shirt for this episode so (laughs)
3: Excellent. I, l- I love theming, even when the people can't see it. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that's commitment. That's commitment.
1: It's true, listeners. We always dress utterly, utterly to the nines to record this podcast. You you wouldn't know that because you can't see us, but it's true. We're you know decked out in tuxes and tails and ballgowns. Oh,
3: I wouldn't. I wouldn't dare <laughs> appear on Skype without my pearls. I. What sort of southern lady would I be? <laughs> So, yes, yeah, so, so thinking about fantasy cussing, and I feel like there are, there are lots of inroads to this. And many times what you'll get is sort of the slant curse. The, this is a curse word with one or two letters changed, but it has the same essential tone and the same essential meaning. But because we are world building for masochists, we want to go deeper than that. We want to think about really what makes something profane in your world, and thinking about that means thinking first about what is sacred, what is there to be defiled or transgressed against in some way.
1: But also, how do you express that, like, you can use your curse words in, in, I was just thinking about how you, you know, you said that there's, you know, oftentimes they'll just like change a few words or, you know, copy paste other words into you know this where words I was thinking specifically of Farscape, where like it's frell this and Dren that instead of fucking shit, but and they had like a whole list, but it was explicitly because the reason why these all these aliens could talk to each other is they all had translator microbes, and the translator microbes actually would censor everybody what you were hearing, so so thus it, it translated it into a you know a tamer word for everyone else here. Something so value neutral,
3: might, good for all society. Something value
1: neutral, yeah. So that <laughs> you can't say anything too offensive and, and that was that was how those worked. And I, I always found that that was an amusing workaround. To, we know what they're saying, but you know, they don't but have it work in world in terms of in terms of, you know, not not using the actual curse words because it's, you know, network T V, but at the same time, you know. <laughs>
2: you know what it is well and i you know that's Mm -hmm. one of those things where you you have to walk such a fine line you don't want to you don't want to reinvent the wheel right you don't want to come up with a, a some kind of profanity that is completely going to throw your reader off even even if you introduce it but if you you know if everybody in your world says um i don't know fickle sticks instead of (laughs) whatever then you yeah. every time the person reads it they're gonna be like wait what um but we have such a tendency to substitute words for curse words no matter what it is um just depending on where you are I mean I think I was an adult before I realized that when my grandmother said sugar that was not what she meant right (laughs) like (laughs) so I one of the things that I did when um I ended up having to play with language and think about language a lot more than I anticipated because in the Hale Bristol novels, you're dealing with a world that has um, come up and been developed as a matriarchy, right? So you tend to remove a lot of words or I ended up having to remove a lot of words that are so common in our society that just wouldn't have held a whole lot of meaning because they didn't matter, right? Like the word bastard as a cuss word against somebody doesn't exist because in a world where it only matters who your mother is, it's kind of hard to be a bastard. (laughs) Um, And then the other big word that I chose was the use of cow shit um, instead of bullshit because I thought that it was an easy enough substitute. Obviously, everybody still knows what it is. Um, but in a world that is not only female centric, but is also Indian based, the use of, of cow is something that is not only sacred, but then to use it in a profanity, um, seemed to make perfect sense.
1: Yeah, I, with Velocity, I, I hit the same sort of note where it's like, I can't use the word bastard as some sort of insult because, you know, I've created a culture where marriage and legitimate birth is not really a thing so therefore why would people use that as an insult and the same thing since i created a culture that is pansexual and and polyamorous and there's no using fuck as any sort of like insulting term because because there's no There's no stigma against you know people will just fuck each other all the time and it's it's fine (laughs) and therefore there's no using it as like ooh that's a bad word don't use it so I had to I had to modify my mindset the whole time when I was writing to keep all that in mind because there's so many times where like my instinct when I'm like you know typing on a roll is like this fucking asshole I'm like no no (laughs) step back fix that. This
3: something else, asshole.
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: I actually had a a reader reaction that was there were times in in my book where he really felt that a a good solid fuck was needed in the dialogue, but because in there there are rules surrounding
3: Sex. i'm glad you specified in the dialogue because otherwise it's like in the dialogue, otherwise it's like mood i mean
0: <laughs> i mean well and you know that happens but because uh, there are rules surrounding sex but it's not a it's not a prudish society where sex is bad so it was like well the word fuck doesn't really work as a curse if you know if that, that's not a shameful thing to be caught doing or to be you know engaged in so it just doesn't doesn't work and and I guess but it was an interesting reaction from a reader that my you know not having any replacement for that rang to that particular reader as well that you know the curse words I used weren't strong enough which is interesting because I was sitting here thinking about a completely different different issue involving curse words instead of how is the reader going to react to to no fucks given in the dialogue?
3: Well, it's such an interesting thing because we do have a scale of curse words, right? We sort of think of the ones that are easier to let slip by and the ones that are worse, for, for lack of a better term, the ones that will get you an R rating from the movie people. And that conception of what is worse has changed over time certainly and it's a reflection of how the society works and as more and more sci-fi and fantasy moves towards sex positivity it is causing us this cognitive dissonance in the curse words we use which I think is just fascinating I can't wait to see how we all keep wrangling it (laughs) as we go forward
1: (laughs) it is fascinating how like the culture shifts and therefore what's acceptable and not continues to shift like I'm thinking about how like what's acceptable on TV, on network TV now compared to say 30 years ago, is radically different. But you get then this funny thing where you'll have movies that were edited to be television safe in the 80s, and of course nobody's gonna bother to pay to re-edit those now, like to redub them or create a new TV-safe version of them. So then you have these really weirdly outdated things being being dubbed over or changed because you know when they when they made that tv safe version in like 1987 like no you couldn't get away with that television but now it's like you you could have said now what they, on, on regular tv what they did. not like
3: did they just bleep out ass was that ass <laughs> that they bleeped out? i distinctly out? <laughs> remember when i was a teenager watching mel brooks the history of the world part one on i think it was comedy central and they bleeped out all the shits but they left the part where the woman opens up her bodice and exposes her full-on tits, and it was like, "Okay, wait. <laughs> so the word "shit is not okay on cable television at three o'clock in the afternoon on a Saturday, but the full-on boobage is i mean i'm not I'm not against the full-on boobage, but it seemed like a weird line to draw who
0: who writes these rules and <laughs> And it is so strange,
2: too, because usually it's the like the sex is what is censored on TV. And they're like, you can blow a guy's head off, you know, for on prime time. (laughs) And nobody blinks an eye about it. But God forbid you show a pair of tits or a penis or something like and everybody loses their goddamn minds. So um, the the idea, I think, too, that language evolves on a number of different time scales, right? Like the literature itself tends to evolve somewhat slower, but we're, we're living in a time where language is evolving, like as fast as technology is evolving. And so, you know, we, we don't blink an eye, most of us at stuff like GTFO, everybody knows what that means. um, And it's relatively acceptable to use it. Um, even in circumstances where you maybe wouldn't be using the word fuck.
1: Yeah, the the idea that it can be acceptable to use that, like, just use the letter F. Everyone knows what you're saying when you use the letter F. It's not like it's not like it's a mystery or anything, but just the idea of, like, that way that line isn't crossed. But when, when you were talking about how, like, the language evolves and the word evolves, I was thinking about on the show Deadwood where people were saying fucking shit this cocksucker all the time but like they made a point of like we're having them swear in this modern way on this show because if we had them swear period appropriate it would sound ridiculously silly because they would all sound like Yosemite Sam because that's <laughs> the way people actually swore in like the 1870s and but like you would never be able to take the characters seriously if they did it that way and
3: well of course it's also we we don't really know that that's how they actually swore because we have so little record of informal spoken language what survives down to us is what got written down and that often has a different standard than the words people actually speak out loud and so even that i think is a valid question like did they not use the word cocksucker all the time they might have just no one bothered to write it down
0: and no and and absolutely because you can i mean you can get into like dictionary of the vulgar tongue from like late 1700s into the 1800s and there is some creative language use in there i mean and words that that we are uncomfortable saying around mixed company are are in there (laughs) that you know and half of these are are they're kind of joking and tongue-in-cheek but there i mean people were definitely using um, some interesting and profane language um, to the extent that it
3: got written down in a pocket guide of vulgarity. My best example of things like that is a paper I wrote in grad school about the language of sexual slander in early modern England. This was mostly 17th century. Um, And it all came from ecclesiastical court records. And the reason those were reliable for what people were actually speaking is because they were about verbal spoken slander and you could take your neighbor to court if she called you an errant bitch from her window (laughs) and there was this whole thing about like if you were in the liminal space of a window or a doorway it was like okay to use that language but you wouldn't say that to them actually out in the street or in your home there was a whole thing about like was it was it better or worse when you could use this but like the things that came out of these women's mouths were a Astonishing. I mean, the verbal creativity was just glorious. And I almost feel like our profane vocabulary today is just much narrower and less colorful. (laughs) It is so much less creative. Like, I'm trying to remember
0: one of my favorites that I came across. And I want to say it was like, oh, shoot. It was like lieutenant of the landing party or something. But it's an insult. And it was like, basically a term for someone who gets so drunk that they're just peeing under the table. So it's, like, this term, but then you can also, like, insult someone with it, and it was like, we we are not creative enough with the things that we can can come up with. You hate for
3: that to be a problem common enough that you need a specific word for it.
0: You really do. So if you are a masochist, and you're building your, you know, your profanity from scratch... And you're starting with the sacred. How do you determine that for your world? I mean, that's tying together all of these pieces that we've talked about on this podcast and and I'm sure have thought about of culture, of religion, of values, of all kinds of stuff. Like, how do you begin to determine that in a way that's meaningful for translating into the practical getting words on the
2: page? with that. I'm like stunned. Everybody's everybody's <laughs> just staring at each other. Nobody has an answer. That's um, one of those really questions tired, that everybody wants the other right? person to Somebody start Somebody else first. start with that. <laughs> well, you know that the, um, the Neo-G series is, is so different because it's well, it, it's not that different I guess when you get right down to it. Both the Hale universe and the Neo-G universe are um, are essentially Earth based Um, and I made some joke the other day that theoretically they could exist in the same universe. Um, there's just a very wide time spread (laughs) between the two. Um, but the, um, the world of Indrana is was significantly, um, more elaborate and more detailed, um, at least in terms of cultural influence and the background, um, the, the majority of the uh, landing parties and the people who came to settle the area were from India, from Southeast Asia, from uh, all of those Pacific areas further. Um, most of them were not from the West. And so I was able to, to use a lot of that um, culture and influence in creating you know, sacred rituals, a lot of the um, practices that happen. And I was really lucky to have um, Indian friends who could help me walk through that. But we also discussed a lot of, you know, what happens when it's 6,000 years from present-day Earth? And what happens to our cultures and our religions? And how does it involve? Because you know it's going to. Nothing stays static. Nothing stays exactly the same. And it's kind of silly to expect it to. Um, it's a lot easier with the Neo-G because it's much closer. It's like 2,400 uh, regular calendar. And so I don't have to work all, nearly as hard. I can use a lot more established um, sacred spaces. But we also have the collapse to deal with, which wiped out a good chunk of the population of Earth. and a whole lot of other stuff so (laughs) a lot of the sacred and profane stuff is filtered through jinx and most of it is like 21st century (laughs) pre-collapse pop culture references
3: I find I find all of that fascinating the act of extrapolating forward how our conceptions of what is sacred will change I think especially when you start getting space travel into the equation there's a notion that exists that that i've seen s- suge- you know, just very sage citizens on twitter you know opine that oh eventually all religion and all sacred things will be obsolete because future and i'm like w- will they though like yeah, right? does that follow does no. that follow through <laughs> no I- i'm not sure that it does it might change and i i'm fascinated by the idea of how not just having one world that we live on could change the idea of what is sacred. Will it make land more or less important? Will that idea of, of, an, of an earth be less important? Or might it even be more special when we realize how much stuff is out there that isn't places we can live? <laughs> you know, like there's a lot to factor in.
2: Right. And that, To
3: those concepts.
2: Yeah, and I, t- I actually ranted about that on Twitter really briefly because I was like, the, the idea that we go into space and suddenly forget religion is is asinine at best um chiefly because space is really fucking scary and humans by and large (laughs) when confronted with scary (laughs) things like to hold on to the stuff that brings us comfort one of those things often being religion for a lot of people um or even just the belief in something which You know a lot of atheists and i am like borderline i'm atheist adjacent is that what (laughs) um you know they don't like to hear that but the truth is if you're an atheist then you believe there is nothing so you you're still believing in something it's just your belief that nothing else exists right um and it's no more or less valid than if you happen to believe in god or gods or whatever else is out there you know the flying spaghetti monster
3: Well,
0: And and humans are remarkable in that even if you don't believe in a deity or a god, like most people still believe in something that they value, that they hold as a form of the sacred, whether it's relationships or, you know, their idea of vocation, or I'm supposed to be doing something with my life, or it's more of an environmental or more of a community-based idea of this is – you know, there is something sacred about contributing to community or there is something sacred about, you know, upholding certain ideals. I mean, humans, it's amazing. <laughs> we all seem to latch on right? to something, even if it's not, you know, a a religious in the traditional sense idea of of sacred Right. Faith. Even
2: if it's sports teams and they're like unwashed underwear, you know, right. <laughs> like, yeah. they all got right. it. Right. <laughs>
1: I, I always keep bringing up Babylon 5, but that's that was a show that did a very good job of showing religion continuing into the future as being a normal part still of everybody's life, and also that these different alien cultures had different religions also, that there wasn't like a monolith of religion on the alien cultures, and that there was religions that popped up because we went into space and met aliens and thus incorporated that into what the faith is, but also still the... You know the common phase here we had one of the main characters was jewish and there's an episode where her rabbi comes out to the station to visit her and they're eating some alien food and he's like is this kosher and she's just like you know i, I really don't know <laughs> it probably is uh, but you know but like incorporating all of that into like the existing face and then a- creating faiths that are based on you know new information and how religions come about in the first place like that's 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 just too fun of a thing to play with to not to to leave that on the table
2: right and i like one of my favorite things is like jakar's whole character arc is basically this religious experience right where he goes from start to finish as this like initially kind of asshole-ish complete jerk to a messianic figure at the by the end of it and it's it's such a fascinating evolution of his character
1: and that the the one alien race basically uses religion as a way to control the other the other aliens because they like a like if you see them outside of their their special suits you see them as angels or the you know equivalent from your culture and so you're inclined to then see them like oh these are sources of divine authority and they use they literally did that though to fuck with people to like be able to control them better like that was what they did
3: well and what Katie was saying about space is scary and humans have an instinct to make things less scary I think that plays into a lot of what we find sacred whether it's religious or not we like the idea that there are things that are inviolable that there are things that can make us safe. And I think back to the ancient ideas of the guest right that you don't murder a dude who's staying in your house. You don't murder a traveler. You offer them bread and salt or bread and water or whatever is you know, the acceptable thing in, in your culture. And once that has happened, that person is safe in your house. And I can so easily see us as a species coming up with things that are like, here are the ideas i can make it so that i am safe to travel anywhere
1: but i i mean you bring up a really good point that there's the things that are not necessarily religious in basis that that are still like sacred things like just what you you brought up of like you know who's a guest in your house i mean that was that was a big running thing in in Game of Thrones, with you know, who you know, you have invited somebody into your house, and so therefore it's considered very, very taboo to then uh, kill somebody who is a guest in your home and slaughter
2: their entire wedding party
1: <laughs> and slaughter their entire wedding party.
2: And since <laughs> yeah. you did that, bit of a social, be, it's a social faux pas,
1: it is a social faux pas, and there's gonna be a reckoning. <laughs> but
0: well, what I think is interesting too is to take those kinds of things that aren't necessarily religious. Um, in nature but are still values that a culture holds and then think about how could you profane them in like just culturally casual ways
1: burning the American flag I mean just the way people hold up elements of the Constitution as, as sacred which, which is not a religious document at all but people refer to elements of the Constitution as if they are God given and, and so you have that level of sanctity and to then treat the iconography of America as sacred and thus to to destroy or defile them is is considered profane to a lot of people, even though it's, you know, it's thus you have things like, oh, don't we don't we need a constitutional amendment against flag burning and things like that? Like that's that's where that all comes from is treating is treating the, the nationalism as, as something sacred.
2: Yeah. I always love that, um, scene from, oh shoot. Is it called the American president? The one with Annette Benning and, um, yes. yeah. Yeah. Yes, where, where he says like that the symbol of America has to be not just the flag, but of somebody burning that flag in protest. And it, it's always such an interesting thing for me because I went from like a Gung ho, you can't burn the flag. It's it is profane, right? When I was like a teenager, um to, you know, a 44-year-old like socialist anarchist practically, who's like, "Yes, burn the flag because it's terrible symbol of oppression and hegemony across the world." Um and so yeah, you like you look at that stuff and what what one person is going to consider sacred is not necessarily what somebody else does. But so often, like Cass pointed out, we have these social codes that are just kind of understood, even if they're not expressly written out anywhere, of how you treat people, how you should, you know, you do you, do you invite somebody into your home and then, you know, are they polite as a guest, or do they get drunk and puke all over your couch? <laughs> if if you're an adult, generally that's frowned upon. If you're a you know college age student, that might just be par for the course on a Saturday night.
1: <laughs> but like, what is quote unquote polite behavior in in a certain situation? I, I'm I'm thinking you know Cass is probably better to speak on this. Than me, but like I'm thinking about like proper Southern manners. <laughs> have, like, a whole... Like, it is, to an extent, something sacred, but, you know, and somebody who breaks it, you know, they might not have, you know, broken the law or broken, you know, or done something irreligious, but they have definitely done something which will, you know, leave them cast out of polite society.
3: Well, and there's the difference between the written codes and the unwritten codes. You know, like, yes. you don't show up at somebody else's barbecue bringing your own potato salad. Just why would you insult your hostess like that that's terrible that's not written in any code but it's something you just sort of learn from observation in the world and it's really bizarre in many ways
0: how those things can reflect like deep-seated cultural values and it's like some of them just seem so silly but then you you dig in a little bit and it's like well it's because we value you should if you're hosting something be able to to show off your own prowess at making your potato salad and we value your culinary skills so we don't insult them by you know in which is you don't think about when you're just thinking about bringing something to a uh,
1: to a and even if we all know that Mary Louise makes a terrible potato salad we're still going to go over there and we're still going to eat it and we're going to smile on our goddamn faces in front of Mary Louise because we're not going to say a thing <laughs> because nobody wants to break her heart like that.
3: No, and like there's things that it's fine well, if- to bring. You can bring some beer. You can bring pies because there's lots of different kinds of pies. And everyone makes a pie a little differently. But potato salad is a personal thing. <laughs> and you don't want to imply that your potato salad is better than somebody else's potato salad. Marshall and I just got real Southern there. That That was good. That was good.
0: Or whether or not you leave right away when you say that you're going to leave. Like, whether or not you end a visit, like, promptly, or you linger... Like, that is either polite or really rude, depending on where you are, and I think it probably reflects, you know, do you, how do you value other people's time, and how do you express a value of that time, and how do you express a value of that person? Because, let me tell you, if you just tried to get up and leave my grandmother's house, Grandma Ruby was going to be offended, you know, because you don't just get up, and you, like, you, you loiter by the door, and then you loiter by the other door, and then you walk out to the door. I mean, it's just... You don't just you, get up and go. Whole you, of, you
2: slap of, your legs and say, "Well, <laughs> it's time to go." Yeah. Well, <laughs> about that time—that
1: time we should be heading off—and then that starts the forty-five-minute process. <laughs>
0: exactly. That's an initiation of the the ritual of the leaving, of the leave-taking.
3: And I think that speaks to a sort of time being a sacred concept. I've I've thought of that in things I've read about the difference between new yorkers especially and and other folk but particularly southerners in like retail situations and how new yorkers just want to get it done no chit chat get in and out fast because everyone's very busy and it's a very crowded place and and you want to you know get the transaction over and done with whereas in the south that's rude if your cashier doesn't at least say hey how you doing we might not mean it i guarantee you i've worked enough retail (laughs) We don't care most of the time, but it's part of that social contract, in the South at least, that you make that chit chat while you're going through the motions of ringing them out.
2: Right. And is it like the, the acceptable response, right, is how, like, how are you doing, oh, I'm fine. It's not a 20 minute, like, diatribe about how your hair is falling out and your husband just left you and, you're <laughs> and you can't, like, you don't have enough money to buy bacon. Um, I don't know if that's like a Midwestern thing or a Western thing. I've overheard like...
3: that exact conversation in a Piggly Wiggly. so. <laughs> I,
2: have, <ooh>. in the... <laughs> I had a hard time in the South.
3: <laughs> we, we simultaneously overshare and pretend that we don't. It's a, We're a very strange people. I, I accept this
1: about us. But on the other hand, if you tell a Manhattan waitress in a diner, three words more than is necessary for her to get your order. She's, you know, going to be very upset with you. <laughs> she does not want a conversation. She's
3: got things to do. She's got 40 other tables. I'm like, I understand that, but it's just one of those like social training things. And yeah. what transgresses is not always in the same language as it were, which I think is where we come back around to our ideas about profanity and, and etiquette sort of overlaps these concepts in a lot of ways
0: so are there any things that are profane that are if not universal somewhat universal because one thing that I keep coming back around to are gross things like it seems like shit is pretty universally like but maybe not maybe there are situations in which poop is in fact not not profane and one would not curse about about poo. I don't know but this has been bothering me as I've been trying to like pick apart like, can, is this universal? Do we all think that shit's disgusting? Would we all curse about it or?
1: I think that there can be like levels of, I want to say, acceptance, depending on like, you know, if you have babies, like that's just like a reality of life. So therefore, you know, or if you. <laughs> tend to a lot of animals that's just a reality of life and so you probably get at least a lot more low-key about like you don't get like oh god this is so (laughs) gross because you know it's just you know that's just that's just normal now (laughs) but i think it is the uh, you know a thing where like just on a i want to say on a public health level like you know (laughs) like Everybody knows, let's not, let's not leave this just lying around. This is not, you know, (laughs) this is
0: like, like on a, like on a primal level, it's like, oh, oh, no, I stepped in it. Oh, it's gross. Yeah. It's
1: gross. Because we have that, 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 that base instinct of like, this is not good. This is, this is something that, this is something that our body said, no, this is, has to leave us. So therefore, (laughs) therefore our instinct is we don't want it back. (laughs)
2: Which is funny, because I think growing up on a farm, that was never really the issue. Like, it it really was just, like, shit. That's what happens. And you don't, like, it wasn't, I mean, when you have pigs, you don't really notice that sort of stuff. Or it's not something, you know, and you, you live down the road from a dairy farm. And so the smell is always there. Um, if the wind's blowing the right direction um or the wrong direction depending on <laughs> where you are so i would say in some it was occurring to me like people who you know clean porta potties for a living um like well, oh god what a terrible job
1: first of all but i'm sure there's people out there who are just like
2: <laughs> no nah, it's just shit like i've seen
1: you, seen it you all getting near to it you get <laughs> you know you get used to that sort of thing and there, you know somebody has to work in down in the the sewage treatment plant and But that can then be a whole thing where in your culture, like the people who work the jobs that involve shit, like they become the untouchables. They become the lowest caste because they're the ones who, who have to, who deal with that and therefore do not get to participate in the rest of polite society or something like that. I would love to to see world
3: building with an inverse of that where like those were the holiest people because they deal with that, which the rest of us do not want to deal with.
2: Or there's that little bit in The Martian where he's, you know, growing his own potatoes in his own shit, which immediately (laughs) makes the shit like the most precious thing he has on the entire planet. (laughs) Um, That's like one thing I'm
0: wondering about, right? Like there are things that are gross or unpleasant, but given the right circumstances, they could be very valuable. Right you know so it's like there are a lot of things that we value culturally that could be totally useless in other circumstances and then you know in the right circumstance plenty of things could be considered not so much gross as
2: right and it's something that like I think about weird things like this all the time when I'm thinking about moving to other planets (laughs) and the logistics of, of building a life on other planets and what you you know Are are we going to be in situations where we are going to have to be farming in our own shit once again? Because it is the only thing that works on the planet to actually make food grow that is sustainable for us. Or, you know, like Cass mentioned earlier, the idea of salt is such a constant fascination to me because it's. It's one of the most important things on our planet, for sure, right? We, it's been used as currency. It's, it's used, in some cases, as sacred. It has been, been fought over in wars. Um, and we can't live without it. Like, it's one of the few things that we don't manufacture in our bodies, and we need it. Like, our brains don't function without it. The synapses don't fire. Um, And so the question of whether or not there's salt on other planets for us to be able to find um, is, like, a big deal. Because otherwise, we're not going anywhere. We can't. There's no physical way we could move enough salt to survive.
3: That's, I've never thought of that before, and I love it. Like swearing by the salt could be a thing because it's so precious, and if people become aware of how necessary it is. Wow, oh, I love that.
2: Right, I might be working on something like that. And that, no. excellent. Maybe. Maybe.
0: And I, I like to think about like the the reverse of that too. Like what are the things that are not giant burdens on us but that very easily like could be like we don't have to deal with things in our lives in you know 21st century america where pests become a big problem that often you know rats might be annoying but we don't actually have our granaries like overrun with them and now we're going to starve this winter um or we don't have you know my my field did not get overrun by locusts and i am going to now not have food this winter and until this year we didn't worry about plagues so much but you can see why some of those words end up in you know lexicons of curse words from a long time ago because they're giant problems and you know what could be worse than a plague of rats not much like that's that's not good at all don't give 2020 more ideas I'm sorry I we already have undead mates like we don't need a plague of rats yes and murder hornets so
1: but you're right like you know a plague on both your houses like nobody's nobody says things like that you know but maybe they they will that might be the thing to say in 2020 in the 2020s you know a plague upon you sir
2: right well so I remember seeing floating around somebody saying like we can no longer say avoid it like the plague because it's very clear that some people don't do that. Like, good at that. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like very common sense type of shit, but it's
1: not. Avoid like the plague. Oh, you mean just like go right into lick it, it and stick your just face lick in it? it. <laughs> yeah. Just...
0: You said don't touch my face, so I just stick my finger right up my nose. Then, all right, cool, cool, cool.
3: We here at World Building for Masochists encourage you to wear a mask. <laughs> Damn it!
1: Stay home. Listen to podcasts.
3: Just replay this podcast over and over to entertain yourself until quarantine's <laughs> over. That's all.
0: <laughs> so, what are ways um, to express profanity outside of cursing? One that I always love is graffiti.
3: I do love graffiti,
0: which often incorporates
3: penises everywhere, curse words, yeah,
0: but often does not incorporate the words and can just be can just um, be infographic, yeah. as it
1: were. <laughs> Like cassette, penises everywhere.
3: It can also be though, like the act of of anything on a certain space that is viewed as sacred, whether it's you know a temple or a church or a statue of a dickhead Confederate general. Whatever you do to that is considered by some people profaning it, whether or not you put curse words or penises on it, at all.
0: It could be a it could be a yeah, face. but
3: just the act and of changing. The space oh my
0: god where was it? i think it was in in savannah there was a, a confederate statue memorial and someone and this is like i think not even just this year it's been going on
2: because someone gets putting googly yes, eyes yes the googly <laughs> eyes and
0: i love it because it's like and people were losing their shit it's the most ridiculous looking thing
2: it's wonderful god i love that perfect. i love it so much it's like the perfect ridiculous rebellion yes Right, and what do you do when you like, it, like that that little rebellion where you take something that is supposed to be sacred and you make it profane, not by like necessarily covering it in shit, but by doing something that is so ridiculous to it, and so unbelievably, you know, just makes people go, wait, what?
3: You did what? The profanity of the absurd.
1: Yes. What a, a gorgeous concept. It and, it, and, it,
0: and it reduces it to the absurd, right? If you treat it very seriously and you write a diatribe on it, you have treated it as a serious thing, but you put googly eyes on it, and that takes it to a whole other level. You
1: take its power away by, by profaning <laughs> yes. it that way, as opposed to elevating its power by treating it as such a sacred thing in your diatribe.
3: I'm picturing Martin Luther rather than nailing his 95 Theses to the wall. <laughs> Putting googly, just googly eyes just eyes. all over. <laughs> would have made a different statement. Better or worse, who can say? That's a question <laughs> but different. for us fiction writers to figure out. But <laughs> different statement.
1: But there there is an idea. How what sort of schism in a church would there be if the Martin Luther of your world hammered googly eyes on the church?
2: <laughs> I had a... or just drew a
1: penis on the church <laughs> <Sure>. door.
2: <laughs> I actually had a trumped novel where one of the it was like a ridiculous hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy style space opera that was like 10 years too early for the market. And there was a church of the sacred waffle um, that has a, had a schism based on like butter or syrup. Um, like what the toppings on the waffle were supposed to be.
3: I'm sorry, or? I, I know. <laughs>
1: Does
3: that make me a heretic? Am yeah. I? <laughs> <laughs> what what, what about sorry. fruit preserves
0: I and
2: feel out- like get out? <laughs> I, feel, I feel like there were some radical Blasphemer! offshoots. Radical offshoots, yeah, that had chocolate syrup on it or strawberries or...
3: <laughs> I feel like that would be the natural evolution of the Waffle House into the future. I mean there are people yeah. that take Waffle House very seriously <laughs> extrapolate that a few centuries ahead and yeah. you've got I'll to touch the waffle
2: if any of them are listening welcome I'll to the house them of waffles <laughs>
1: <laughs> Though that does, I mean I love the idea like if you're going to do something like into the future and extrapolate into the future of taking something that is ultra mon- mundane now and elevating that to to the, the sacred level like having Waffle House be the place of worship or in Canical for leibowitz how they just like revere you know electronics diagrams because they don't know what they are they just think these must be very important things so we need to we need to you know th- these are the sacred texts that show how the how the you know the resistors are lined up and you know it's it's a wild thing but it is just like we've made elect, you know how to build a radio into a sacred text, but we don't know how to build a radio.
2: I do wonder sometimes about like, if the historians of the future will, like we tend to suffer from a lack of information, right? Because so much stuff has been lost. And I wonder sometimes if the historians of the future are just going to be drowned. Like they won't know what to do because there is so much information. And they're like, Twitter,
1: we don't understand it.
2: <laughs> and we're like, sorry, we didn't understand it either, guys. Like it was- <laughs> think,
1: think about how much communication is just done with, with gifts. And therefore, like and it is pure like knowing the pop culture. It is it's pure Dharma cangelada tanagra. And we understand exactly what we're saying when we share gifts with each other, but in two hundred years they're just gonna be like what is this all about? Why are they... (laughs) Oh,
2: basically. That was one of my favorite things to do with Jenks in the Neo-G books is she will like pop off with some pop culture reference and half of the people around her are like, we have no idea what she's talking about. But the readers, of course, are like, oh, I get it. It's great.
0: And you filter all these things through like the paradigm of how you understand stuff working So, I mean, I could see historians of the future looking at, like, our obsession with houseplants and succulents and being like, did they ritually buy one a year and kill it? (laughs) I don't know if I understand the purpose behind it, but it seems very regular that they would do this, and everyone knew they all do this.
3: (laughs) Sort of how my mom is with mums, because, like, every autumn she feels compelled to get a few of them, and they always die. It's... It happens like in the harvest season, and it's. it's hmm. I'm gonna ask her if that's a conscious ritual.
1: Or... Every year, they take an evergreen tree and cut it down, take it in their home, se- you know, celebrate it as a sacred space until it until it rots, and then throws it away. Why do they do this?
0: They've they've bred the squash to be not very good to eat. <laughs> but to grow rather big, and then they carve silly faces (laughs) in it.
3: I love humans. We're so goddamn weird. (laughs) (laughs) We will anthropomorphize anything, and I love that about us, and I think that's where a lot of our religion comes from, and I'm excited to
2: see where that goes in the future. (laughs) I feel like we're constitutionally incapable of, of not anthropomorphizing things, right? Like... You apologize to your computer when you say something mean to it because it's not functioning right. You, you know.
0: <laughs> okay, well, that's, that's because I'm Midwestern. <laughs> there's,
2: there's an episode
3: of Star Trek TNG where she, she's a minor recurring character. I can't remember her name. She works in engineering with Geordie and she says thank you to the computer. And, and he's like, why'd you do that? That was weird. And I was like, I completely understand why she did that. I would absolutely thank the computer for giving me information.
2: That just seems polite. Yeah, I thank Alexa a lot. The theory is like that way you're not first against the wall when the robot revolution comes. (laughs) Be nice to your technology people because one day it will rise up and kill us all.
3: Once again, we make sacred the things that we want to think of as safe. (laughs) What makes us safe, we will ritualize it. Which then, I suppose, brings profanity into the realm of that which endangers. And and is that a level of of what we consider profane? I don't know. That's That thought literally just occurred to me. There's a thesis in there somewhere if someone wants to do their doctorate on it. Um.
1: <laughs> the things that you say that can bring danger upon you, whether even if it is just out of superstition or, or what have you, because you don't want to risk the wrath of the thing high atop the hill or whatever
3: saying Macbeth in a theater yeah you know I mean I'm not saying I totally believe in it but I am saying that one time during production of One Henry Four somebody said it backstage and then the projector screen above the auditorium crashed and almost killed three people was it because Just someone saying. violated that sacred principle who can say
0: <laughs> well and there is a certain recklessness about a lot of profanity It's an act of rebellion, an act of recklessness, that, you know, an act of independence often.
3: Most of us start saying fuck a lot as teenagers when we're in that, you know, mode.
2: Right, it's a deliberate challenge against, you know, authority or God or, you know, whatever is out there. You look at um, Romeo shouting, I defy you stars right is a is a distinct like (laughs) is a distinct i just made gas wound um it's such a good moment moment. (laughs) um it's a distinct like like i will not bow to you i won't let this omnipotent um unseeing supposedly uncaring being that is in charge of everything rule my life and tell me what to do And also teenage, you
1: know, like, it's
2: cool. It's cool to say the word fuck, so we're going to do it a whole lot.
1: <laughs> Which, is, I mean, I keep thinking about how, like, 30 years ago, you would never see anybody say fuck in a fantasy novel. Like, it just wouldn't happen. And, And then, like, I'm pretty sure it was Game of Thrones was the one that really sort of, like... Broke the seal on that, and then people were like, "Oh my god, you 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 can do that? You can do, you can that. do- <laughs> that, that? That's amazing! Wait, does it, that mean we can do all of that?" And then you know, and but then it became you know, you you open the seal, and then you know, by ten fifteen years, it is relatively normal, and nobody blinks an eye at it anymore. Because again, the culture shifts, the language shifts, the mores shift.
3: And I I wonder if or when, really, it will ever shift back, because these things do sort of ebb and flow in society.
1: There's a pendulum sometimes.
3: Yeah. yeah. We
0: we may be in our rebellious teenage phase right now, and it's just going to seem, like, so juvenile to drop all those F-bombs.
1: <laughs> like, will there, re- will there reach a point where, like, in, you know, pop culture media, like, it will be, it'll go back to being, you know, you know, June Cleaver level of of, of, of <laughs> cleanliness or, or, or sanctity that, you know, doing anything would be is considered beyond the pale. Like, I, I don't know. Like, that's weird because when it comes to, like, mass media and stuff, like, I don't know if you can necessarily put the genie back in the bottle. Like, like, I'm thinking about how, like, in the 80s, like, everything Madonna did was considered, like, so shocking so like you know oh my god she's you know she's destroying the children with this and then you know and then 30 years later now you you know you basically have pop stars who like don't even know what they can do anymore to be shocking because there's (laughs) nothing left
3: (laughs) but there's sort of i think that does create its own backlash there's a big contingent of purity police in a lot of aspects of of fandom i've noticed the last several years and it comes from younger people than you would think which i find fascinating that's a whole other kettle of fish to deal with but i do think we will see that backlash i don't know how fast it'll happen but i know it has happened historically that that there are always periods where profanity is more acceptable and then we get more restrictive again but i don't know how much of that is society sort of forgetting and not having as much access to text of the past that were more profane versus now when, you know, these things will still be available. I don't know. Like, there's a weird sort of spectrum for it all to fall on, but I do think we'll see that shift someday.
1: (laughs) But it is a hard shift to to manifest if you can't, you know, lock away, you know, it's not like they can all be put back in the Disney vault where where nobody finds all the... (laughs) all the crazy wild <laughs> things that we've been doing for the past 30 years.
3: But if someone you know, if we imagine a place where, where founding planets is easy to do, and Ooh, yeah. and some society says, hey, we're going to go found a cleaner society then, I don't know would that be possible? What would that look like? And how would it function? I don't know.
1: Could they, yeah, actively purge all their, all their records of like, all the all the stuff that they didn't want to, and, you know, and create Pleasantville on some, some planet that...
3: <laughs> and then it, what would take the place? Because I feel like these human instincts for profaning the sacred, for having rebellion, for having the outlet of vocabulary would manifest, but what different words would it be? Right.
0: And even, it, and even if you have like the, the knowledge or, you know, even firsthand knowledge that hasn't been necessarily scrubbed out or censored or taken away, there can still be pressures that push people away from using it in the same ways or using it themselves if it's you know deemed that that's you know culture that your cultural currency of dropping an f-bomb has dropped from a 50 to like a two and in fact doing this is now the thing that is going to get you attention um you know there's there's that to kind of play with too
2: yeah i would think like the idea that it's it's terrifyingly easy. I know I was saying earlier, like that we have so much information, and and sh- nothing short of like catastrophic um, meltdown is going to remove that from the human memory and from any kind of data access. But it's still terrifyingly easy to kind of erase stuff. Um, and if you're talking about going to a completely separate planet where you don't have access. Right, like if they don't take memory banks full of the internet and everything else and all of human history with them and only take the specific things that they want people to know, um, you are gonna get like some kind of handmaid's tale type of society where they are very, you know, as essentially fascist and only letting people have the information that they want. But then, like Cass said, the rebellious part of our nature, I think, like you get one generation of peace in that. (laughs) And then the net, you know, and then you get some kid (laughs) born somewhere who wants to know more and, and doesn't understand why things have to be this way and done this way.
0: Well, and if you think about like, like the 50s, like the, you know, June Cleaver world, I mean, that's coming right after, you know, people had still a cultural memory of the 20s. Um, which had a lot of excess and profanity and sexuality wrapped up in it, and the 30s and 40s, which had a lot of hard times and associated um, verbal, I'm sure, outbursts associated with them. I am quite confident that World War II sailors and soldiers were no cleaner mouthed than the ones today. Um, But then there was a cultural pressure to move away from that and to create a different ideal and a different facade and different forms of of expression and to elevate the idea of creating domestic sanctity out of out of your space and to create a certain sacredness out of particular gender roles and to create certain sacredness out of patriotism and and that those pressures pushed the profane to a more you know liminal space than it had been in previous, you know, decades. And these people remembered, I mean, that many of them had actually been there. So societal pressure can do a lot of things, um, even if, if straight up erasure and censorship
3: can't. I think societal pressure can also speak to who has more permission to do these things as well. Uh, whether it's a class structure or gender-based or what have you, is profanity verbal or visual or whatever it is more acceptable in some people than others is it expected of some people even if that's in a, you know, a sort of classist sort of way like oh yes well of course those peasants talk about shit all the time but we aristocracy we <laughs> don't, wallowing don't talk in about it. the shit <laughs> um, but even like I mean that's it's a thing today I clearly drop the f-bomb all the fucking time when I'm talking I don't tend to use it on twitter because I am aware that people are evaluating me in a certain way I'm often trying to get jobs or trying to get booked for things, and it doesn't enhance my social capital in the way that, say, Chuck Wendig, it's part of his brand, essentially. And that's different based on our different demographics, and I think that extrapolates out to lots of different sectors of society as well.
1: And how much do you want to craft a brand that's based on that or not based on that? Or like... People like Chuck or such who have crafted a brand on that, and sometimes you wonder, in there, like, I wish I could stop doing this, but I can't because, because <laughs> I've now made it, I've now made it my thing, and yeah, you know, like I wonder about stuff like that with some people. I don't think that's the case with Chuck, because Chuck seems to love to to swear constantly because that's that's just how Chuck is. He's a wonderful human being.
0: But no, Cass, you're right that I think if you're thinking about you know profanity at all who is allowed to engage in it even though profanity is always going to be something that is kind of outside the cultural acceptability um who is who gets punished more for for participating in it i think that it's fairly safe to say that there are certainly times where women have been not really permitted to engage in profanity in the same way that men have um, or where people of a certain class were not really allowed to engage in profanity in the same way that other people are. And I think that that's something to consider in world building. Who is who is in this world allowed to play in that way and who is going to be paying a much steeper price for dropping an F-bomb or whatever your world's equivalent of the F-bomb is. Right. Or
1: in engaging in profanity or not engaging in profanity, are you showing... Like what your class is for 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 that culture are you you showing are you like are only the nobility allowed to to, to use the f bomb or is it you know do you show just how how low and vulgar you are by doing it and
2: right. and
1: then is it expected I I I can't even think of the one time I worked in a really high pressure kitchen where everyone swore like nobody's business in that in that. Situation where to the point where it's almost expected. Like if you didn't, like what's wrong with you? <laughs> like, like you you don't fit in here, buddy. With you with your <laughs> you with your clean mouth. Uh, I don't think you're the kind of person we we, we want in this sort of place. <laughs> we don't like your kind around here. Fancy, Fancy words.
2: Your... <laughs> <laughs> it is true though. You know the difference between um, it, the environments that you work in. That's you know. um I have, like, a great deal of my life worked in relatively blue-collar jobs, like manufacturing and, um, uh, like, metal places with metal press and construction and stuff like that. And it's all, like, upper-class office jobs because I have a degree, and they apparently still require that for, <laughs> you know, working in an office in a construction company. But you... The... Um, the time that I spent like working for the Department of Agriculture, right? So I'm working for like Colorado state government and the, the stuff that went on there and how people spoke to each other there is so different, um, from where I am now and the jobs that I work now. Um, and you just, you know, you kind of bounce from one to the other. Like I can, I can chameleon pretty well. If I have to be in a government job, I can watch my mouth and not drop, the fuck word every two minutes but if I'm working you know where I am now if I have to go out into the shop and shout at my guys I'm certainly dropping f-bombs because it's usually the only way they listen.
0: <laughs> Profanity is one of the ultimate code switches. Yeah,
2: yeah. and I it is. I think yeah. that's an interesting thing to look at too when you're world building in terms of if you have characters who are either trying to fit in in a, a place where they don't belong and Is that something that they can use to kind of seamlessly blend into the culture and into what's going on around them? Or is it something that's totally going to trip them up? And they say the wrong word at the wrong time in the wrong set of people. And it's and it, you know, totally blows them. Kind of like that scene in Inglorious Bastards where he uses the wrong fingers to order drinks and...
1: you you were mentioning code switching between different jobs and i was thinking of the the radical difference when i you know had the office job and also theater jobs at the same time because <laughs> you, if you mix those up then then you're in an hr nightmare <laughs> because <laughs> I worked with one very avant-garde theater company where regularly it was like okay we're going to strip this one actor naked and we're gonna cover their body with vaseline so they can slip into this costume like that's that's the day at work right now for that but that would probably be frowned upon if you did that at the office the next morning
3: well on the note of vaseline people (laughs) we are (laughs) pretty well over our time at this point which is excellent um we end with guest star world building where we invite our guests to give us a bit of trivia for the world and that we're building live on this podcast. And it can be related to this episode. It can be not related to this episode. It can be literally anything. And so what would you like to bestow upon us?
2: So I, you know, I have been playing a lot of Assassin's Creed um, over the last year. (laughs) <laughs> um, first with first with Odyssey, and now I'm playing Valhalla, which is is quite a bit of fun. Um, but my my continued complaint with the last two iterations of this game is that there's not nearly enough assassinating uh, for a game that has it in its title. <laughs> Hard that stare. That does seem like
3: a flaw. Yeah. Hard
2: stare at Ubisoft. Stop <laughs> making me fight big battles. I just want to sneak around in the bushes and kill people. Um, therefore, <laughs> I decided that I would gift you all with an assassin uh, whose name is Helga the Quiet. The catch is you can only use her twice a year.
3: Fascinating. Do you have a reason why or do we need to come up with the reason why?
1: Is, no. is that like her personal code <laughs> that she only kills twice a year? It's the sacred <laughs> or thing. Is it I, every... I'm curious.
2: I would go. Does, I would go with Marshall's suggestion. I think that's very valid. <laughs> like,
1: <laughs> or is is it she only does two kills a year? Period. Or is it she only does two kills a year per customer?
2: Per customer. <laughs> it's a good question. It's a good
1: Which question. These are very,
2: Which means that technically, you guys questions. have six kills a year. So you know, use them wisely. <laughs> oh, we
1: can coordinate. I'm sure. Oh <laughs> my god! But like. The idea that's like she's the best, but also will only kill two people a year, and like therefore commands top dollar, and is a thing where it's like like it's a whole bidding war of like you know, you know, like we need that. She's the only one who can get in and get this particular queen, so therefore like you know <laughs> we all got <laughs> we have to make sure that that's her kill for the summer because you know.
3: And, like, how far in advance does she book? I would hope not too far That's because it would be way more interesting if you yeah, have she, to have, like... She probably books, like, really far in advance and you have to get on a wait. See, I don't know, because the people and... might die on their own by then. <laughs> and so then it's a wasted That's assassination. True. I think it should be shorter term. And there's, like, bidding wars and auctions <laughs> and things like that.
1: Right. Right. Like, like the, the summer killing, like, that... The, like, the bids open on, like the vernal equinox and you know
3: <laughs> there's there's like a waiting list to get on the waiting list to come to the auction she's so popular yeah i like that oh i could oh yeah i could build a whole short story around this at
2: least Ooh, ooh i like it
1: because <laughs> because those are the crazy rules you can come up with when you're the best
2: right and everybody else has to play along,
1: right i love it
2: hashtag
3: goals <laughs> having that much power not the murdering people part necessarily But but being being able
1: to throw those green M&M clauses into your contract, that's that's the way you want to live your life. People treat you like you're the sacred.
0: Well, Katie, it has been delightful (laughs) having you on. Thank you so much for coming to play with us. Oh, thank you so much
2: for having me.
1: Hi, you! Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on January 6th, where we'll be joined by Marie Brennan and Alec Helms, who write together under the name M.A. Carrick, where we'll be discussing myths, legends, and other lies of history. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or you just want to tell us how cute we are, there are a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as Worldbuildcast, and our email is worldbuildcast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come chat with us and other friends of the podcast. We'd love to have you share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts.